Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So on that note, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is where we left off. We are after a couple months break back in John chapter 8, where we left off at the end of John chapter 7 in our study through John. So if you're visiting us for the first time in a while or first time ever, it's our practice here generally to just work through books of the Bible. And we are working through the Gospel of John, which we started at the beginning of last year, and we find ourselves in John chapter 8 uh, this morning, which is uh, quite a passage to jump back into in this new year, and I'll explain why in, in just a moment. Let me also just mention uh, that generally it's been the practice here when uh, we preach through a book, and I'm the primary pastor, preacher, uh, I, will, I will generally be the one that will preach through a book, so if I'm gone... The other guys, when they preach, will do kind of a standalone text or something not in the flow of what we're preaching through. But next Sunday, when I'm in California, uh, Robert is going to preach, and I've asked him to continue on in John because we've got a lot of things going on in this upcoming year, and I don't want it to take us forever to get through John. And so John, uh, Robert's going to preach the next section in John, so I didn't want you to think like he was going rogue on you or anything like that. Now, if he dips back into verses, chapters 1 through 7 and cleans up any of my messes on aisle 6 or whatever, well, then we'll just deal with that when I get back. But, but amen. <laughs> well, this is quite a passage to jump into. And the first thing that I want to mention is that you may notice that there's some brackets in your text. In fact, we're going to look at the end of John chapter 7, verse 53. And this is a portion of the Bible that probably isn't part of the original Bible. Why are the brackets there at the end of, or really the end of chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11? And by the way, the chapter and verse designations were things that were added much later during English translations of the Bible. And this was, and, and most of the time that's a helpful thing, and they did a pretty good job with it, but this is one of those instances where they, they probably didn't get it right, so don't be too, too bothered by that. That's not, that part of the Bible is not inspir- inspired and infallible. But what's going on with these brackets? Well, uh, we know that this portion of the Gospel of John was probably not something that John wrote. It's not mentioned in the earliest manuscripts. And much of the literary features of this uh, passage are not ways that John would write. And it doesn't really show up in any of the early church writings until the first couple centuries after John would have wrote his gospel. None of the early church fathers really reference it. And so the first time it really sort of arrives on the scene in the other literature in the early church is in the 3rd, 4th, maybe 5th century. And so we're pretty certain that this is actually not something that John himself authored like the other portion of the Gospel of John. So what are we to do with this? Well, first thing I want to say is that this should not in any way cause you any sort of doubt in the, the, uh, the truthfulness and the reliability of the Bible. There are a few passages like this that exist in your Bible. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, the last 10, 11, 12 verses or so 
are similar. They're, they're, we know that they probably weren't written by Mark, but they're in the back of your Bible in Mark and kind of bracket with maybe an asterisk or a footnote. Well, should this shake our confidence in the reliability of what we have in front of us as what the original authors wrote? No, actually, the fact that we know this wasn't part of John's original writing should actually increase our sense of reliability in the Scriptures because the fact that we know that this was probably added later through church tradition and the fact that we know that actually gives us a great amount of confidence that the the, this discipline called manuscript evidence or textual criticism or the evaluation of all these early copies of the New Testament. You know we don't have the original actual version of John or any of the books of the Bible, but we have multiple, trans, uh, tra- uh, multiple copies or manuscripts of all of the books of the Bible. And in fact, we have a huge number of copies And what this particular discipline is, is when you take all of these multiple copies, some of them do have minor errors in them. And some of them, in particular in the Gospel of John, have this story added here at the beginning of chapter 8, or maybe in other places, a few others put them in Luke. So what should this do for us? Well, when we have a, a smaller number of copies that have this story inserted in there, and the vast majority don't, it actually increases our, our confidence in the fact that the vast majority do represent the actual Gospel of John. So what are we to do then? So first of all, I want you to, this shouldn't shake your, reliability, or your confidence in the reliability of the Bible. It should actually increase it. But then what are we to do with this? Should this story be sort of printed in our Bibles, and should we give consideration to it? And I would argue that while we understand that it's not something that John originally wrote, I would argue that it is worthy of our consideration. There is a reason why this story is still printed in your Bibles, because it is a beautiful, wonderful story that drips with gospel truth. So while it may not be written by John virtually every scholar believes that these events that are recorded are true and that it was oral tradition that was passed down. And as one commentator said, and I love this, it is a faithful echo of the spirit and character of the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus and is worthy of our consideration. And so we're going to look at this passage. And I also would say that it's one of the more well-known portions of the Gospel of John. And so for us to skip over it, I think, would actually cause more problems than it would solve. And so we're going to roll up our sleeves and dig into this beautiful passage. So here's my plan. I'm going to read the text slowly, comment along the way. And then I want us to consider really two sort of headings, the nature of grace and the nature of repentance. The nature of grace and the nature of repentance. Well, let me pray. Lord, as we read this passage, as we read this story, we know that the, the situation, the issue at hand is, is a striking one. It involves deep sin and even deeper grace. Lord, I know that people in this room, virtually all of us to some degree or another, have been touched by this particular sin mentioned here on a broader level, sexual sin, deep fallenness. 
I pray that you would give us a humility as we work through this passage. I pray that you would give us a, a better understanding of the gospel, a better understanding of ourselves, and a better understanding of how to live for you with each other in gospel community. And I pray for any of my friends that are in this room that don't yet know Jesus, that Lord, by your sovereign grace, by the Spirit of God, at work through the Word of God, that you would draw sinners to yourself. Because if there's one thing this, this story teaches us, it is that Jesus is a friend of sinners. So help us now, Lord, and help me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The end of chapter 7 says they went each to his own house. There's mounting opposition to Jesus and his teaching that, that just to give us a little context, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to discredit him. He's, he's gathering popularity amongst the people. He's doing wonderful works. There's, miracles are happening, and they are threatened by his ministry. And so there's, there's a, intensity is rising as we approach the crucifixion of Jesus. Chapter 8, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And let me pause there and make a few comments. Just take in. I think it's, it's rather obvious. Don't miss the indignity of how they treated this woman. Even if she was guilty, in fact, we can presume that she was by the end of the story, which we'll get to in a moment, people are not test cases. They are souls. And, and these religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, were, were treating this woman merely as a means to their own selfish ends. They didn't care about her. They didn't care about God's holiness. They didn't care about grace. They cared about their own power, and they were thrusting this woman in this embarrassing way in front of the crowd before Jesus. So, so note that. Note, note secondly, note, and I think this is intentional, note that the absence of the man, adultery is a, a two-person sport. And where's the man? Where is he? Is it because the Bible is somehow chauvinistic, highlighting the sin merely of a woman? No, certainly not. Where is he? Well, maybe, maybe it's just because he kind of ran away. You know, he, he got away and they couldn't physically capture him. Uh, or, or maybe... There is a kind of chauvinism, a sinful chauvinism at play here where, where the accusers are really only concerned about this woman and her sin and they're giving kind of a wink-wink to the man in this broken religious application of culture that they have here. Maybe that's at play. And that should be a kind of warning to us that there is something, even, even today in our culture, some 2,000 years later, there is Something about sexual sin as how it's perceived in our culture where we are more prone to blame women than men for some reason. There's a kind of sense, and this is straight from the pits of hell, that boys will be boys, but oh girls, you better be good. 
Friends, that is a, a kind of wickedness that is a burden on women that have been made in the image of God, which is so unhelpful. Both men and women are equally fallen in their sexual nature, equally culpable, and equally in need of God's grace. One, one just sort of minor, not minor, but one sort of rabbit trail sort of application of this is that, that how this can manifest itself sometimes in church culture and let me say that modesty certainly is a virtue, and it's something that women should aspire to, but it's also something that men should aspire to. And in a church culture where there's a lot of emphasis placed on modesty and how women should dress, as if that's the only mitigating factor in lust and sexual sin to protect these boys who are going to be boys from looking at you, Friends, that's a misapplication. It's a kind of spirit of chauvinism that I think is at work here in this scene. Now, is modesty a good thing? It's a one yes. But also is the mortification of the flesh and righteousness in, in a man that he also has a responsibility. Everything is a two-way street. And we, we see that at play here, I think, just kind of in a, in a subtle way in this passage. And before we move on, let's, let's also, I think just one other thing needs to be mentioned. is just the seriousness of adultery and sexual sin. I think a few things need to be said about this. I think a good number of people in this room have experienced the pain of this sin, either as the perpetrator or as the victim or as related to somebody who has been on either side of that sin. Friends, we, we need to know that this is not the unpardonable sin. All sin separates us from God. But this sin, we do want to say, this sin and sexual sin in general has a particular ability to damage a person's soul and bring about earthly consequences. Why is that? Why is that? I think it's because union between a man and a woman in marriage is meant for more than just physical pleasure or procreation. Actually, more primarily, sexual union between a man and a woman in marriage is meant to be a kind of picture, a kind of temporary earthly picture of the gospel itself. In fact, that's the point that I think Paul is making in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loves the church. And then he goes on to give a few descriptions of how a man and a woman should relate together in marriage. And then at the end of chapter 5 of Ephesians, he, he calls marriage a mystery. And he says, this is a profound mystery, and I'm referring to Christ in the church. And so although there is nothing physical or sexual, obviously, in salvation, the earthly picture of physical union between a man and a woman even the way our bodies are joined together in the consummation of marriage physically is a kind of temporary earthly picture of our union with Christ by faith in the gospel. And so, when this beautiful, primary, biblical picture, this earthly sort of object lesson of the gospel is attacked through sin and rebellion, it has a particular effect on the witness of the gospel to an onlooking world. And that's why it is 
particularly devastating. But I want to reiterate, if you have been devastated by this sin, either as something you have committed or committed against you, this passage is for our good, for your good. Or if you are being devastated or tempted to, I pray that even as we work through this passage and we see the depth of the richness of the mercy of God, that the Spirit of God would use it to bring about repentance and healing and grace and wholeness in you. Well, let's keep going. Verse 5. Now, in the law of Moses, so this woman is before Jesus, and there's this intensity. Can you imagine the intensity of this scene? And so they say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Verse 5. Now, in the law, the Old Testament law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, again there, we see the echoes of this chauvinism. Such women. Well, it commanded that both parties in this situation be stoned. But they stone such women. So what do you say? Verse 6, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and this is one of the more well-known scenes in the New Testament, I think. Jesus bent down, second part of verse 6, and wrote with his finger on the ground. All right, a couple things we need to think about here before we move on to verse 7. What's going on in the Old Testament with the stoning of uh, sinners that are caught in grievous sins like adultery, both men and women, not just such women, but such people? Well, the Old Testament law is given to give us a picture of the holiness of God and to produce in people not a pathway to salvation as if we could attain the righteousness that the law calls for, but to put a display to actually magnify and illuminate sin. In fact, that's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 7 when he does this incredible uh, kind of uh, 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 side note in his message to the Romans about the law. One of the things he says about the law is that it's good and it's holy and it's still good and holy, but one of the purposes of the law is not as if it was God's plan to bring about righteousness and we failed and so the gospel and his son coming to earth is plan B, but that the law has a kind of illumination effect to actually point out sin. Its, its whole purpose was to show the neediness of man. And so it's showing us God's holiness and our unholiness so that we would run to Christ. It is not a means of salvation. It's showing us that we need salvation. And when we look at the Old Testament, and when we compare it to the New Testament, and we see sinners not stoned like this, and in the early church and now in our church, sinners not stoned like this, what are we to make of this? Is this kind of like, oh, we should just sort of think, oh, well, the Old Testament was strangely severe, but thank God we live in the New Covenant now because God doesn't seem to be as angry or taking it as serious. Is that the application? No. The Old Testament law showing us God's holiness still has that same teaching ministry in the life of the New Testament Christian to give us a picture of the seriousness of judgment. Now, the in-life 
temporary aspect of the actual stoning of sinners and sin like that is meant to be an Old Testament shadow that points to the reality of the eternal judgment that we will all face if we do not repent and trust in the Lord. And so that's how this Old Testament law relates to the New Testament and Christian and how we still should read it and learn from it and be chastened by it and humbled by it so that it would push us to Christ, as Paul says in Galatians. But notice these leaders. They weren't really interested in the upholding of the law. They were not interested in true justice. They didn't care about holiness or God's name. They were just trying to trap Jesus. In fact, that's what the text says. They, 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 they brought this charge so that they might test him. And it presented Jesus with a dilemma. If he agrees with the law, then, and he says, yes, let's stone this woman, then he's going to come across contradictory to the people that he's been ministering to because he was welcoming tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And so it's going to be, it seemed kind of incongruous. Wait a minute, this is Jesus, the merciful, compassionate one, but now all of a sudden he's taking a hard right turn. Is he just playing to the power base there? But if he disagrees with the law, if he disagrees with Moses, then he's going to be discredited in the eyes of Israel at large because the law was what formed him as a nation. And by the way, if he does call for upholding the law, it would put him, which would require, this is a subtle little thing here, if he does call for upholding the law, which would require the stoning of this woman, then it would put him at odds with the Roman government, which Israel was underneath as, as, as subject at this time, because the Roman rule, the Roman authority were the only ones that could actually take a life. And so even the law that the Old Testament, that these scribes and Pharisees were wanting to implement, they weren't enacting it either because they knew that that would put them at odds with their Roman captors. So they're in a fix. They're living a kind of contradictory life, and they're trying to trap Jesus in it. And Jesus is not going to be played. And how does he respond? Well, famously, he stoops down, he bends down, and he writes with his finger on the ground. Now, what did Jesus write? We don't know because the passage doesn't tell us. But what are some thoughts in the history of the church? Some have speculated through the centuries that maybe he wrote the, the specific sins of all the people that were bringing the charge against this woman, maybe. Some have speculated that he was writing an Old Testament text out of Jeremiah that says that those that forsake the Lord, their names are going to be written on the earth. And so he's, he's, he's sort of subtly talking about these Jewish leaders that have forsake, forsaken the Lord and their names are going to be written in the ground. Uh, one uh, great figure in the history of the church, I, I kind of like this, this is an interesting thought, John Calvin said that he thinks that Jesus, in a sense, these weren't Calvin's words, I'm summarizing what I think Calvin said, is that Jesus was kind of blowing them off. Kind of like, oh, well, you, you know, I'm not even giving you the time of the day, so I'm just going to go do something like doodle in the sand. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I think the point is we just don't know. Here's the point I want to make to you, brothers and sisters, is that I think we need to be concerned. I think the, the reason this is included in this story is because it is meant to point us not so much to what Jesus wrote, but how he wrote. In the Old Testament... When God gives the law, because they're saying the law of Moses, 
What do you say about the law of Moses? And every self-respecting Jew would have known how the law of Moses came about. In Exodus, at the end of Exodus, it says that the law of Moses or the, the tablets came, they were written by the finger of God. And here, I think there's an intentional tie together that Jesus, whatever he's writing, I don't think that's so important, but that he's writing with his finger in the ground, I think is meant to point us to the divinity of Jesus and his authority as not just unequal with the law, but over the law. In fact, he's the giver of the law. The same finger that wrote on the tablet in Exodus is the same finger of God that's writing in the dirt in John chapter 8. Jesus will not be backed into the corner by the very law that he wrote and instituted as the second person of the Trinity. In verse 7, as they continued to ask him, ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What is Jesus doing here? He's not letting, friends, this is important. Oh, this is important. He's not letting them wield the word on others before they wield it on themselves. Verse 8, And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. What's, what's going on? Why, why is that insertion there, beginning with the older ones? I, I don't know. Here's just my thought. There's something about age that humbles you a little bit. <laughs> You live a little life, you get kicked in the teeth, you're not quite as holy as you thought you were. At least age should, it doesn't necessarily, but at least age should humble you. And I thank God for the spit and vigor that he puts in some young men, but sometimes young guys, it's like young guys, they just discover some doctrine and they just want to club everybody over the head with it. Like, easy, Tonto, easy. Just exhale a little bit, live a little bit, Realize that perfect fatherhood, perfect motherhood, whatever, is a little easier said than done. Amen. Verses 10 and 11, Jesus stood up. This is so profound. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, these powerful words from Jesus, I think, teach us two, two things that I want to end with briefly before we see two, two members of Crosspoint be baptized. It is first, the nature of grace and the nature of repentance. First, the nature of grace. What does this tell us about the grace of Jesus? First, I want you to see that Jesus, Jesus never recoils from sin or sinners. Jesus isn't scandalized. He's not shocked. He's not surprised. He, he's never concerned with what people will think about his associations. He's not interested in damage control for the sake of image sake. He gets down into the nitty gritty in the dirt with sinners. In the worst moments of our lives, in the worst moment of this woman's life, when everything else is falling apart, when we have no reason to expect 
an audience or a compassionate look from the king, he comes to our defense. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still sinners, not on the way to not being a sinner, not, 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 not resolved to do better, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think it also teaches us about the nature of grace, that grace needs no preparation. It's not something that we get better for. It's just given. It's a gift. It's mercy. She was at the lowest point of her life. It's not earned. This woman did not deserve the mercy and kindness and grace that Jesus gave her. And in this way, friends, don't write yourself out of this story if you are not involved in this particular sin or have never been. In this way, she is a picture of how we all receive grace. We're dead in our sins. We're caught. We're guilty. We have no claim to his goodness. We have no argument for leniency in the courtroom of God. We have no self-defense before our prosecuting attorney and the judge. And we all, like this woman, are guilty. Needs no preparation, grace does. Contrast this, I I think, just as an aside with, with the common religious mindset. Sometimes you hear this from people. It's a kind of woes me sort of spirituality, and, and I, it almost subconsciously when we say things like this, it's almost, I think it's an attempt to kind of medicate ourselves and make ourselves feel better about our supposed humility before the Lord. You might hear somebody say something along the lines of, oh, well, you know, I don't go to church because you don't know what I've done. I would never darken the door. If I had darkened the door of the church, then, then boy, that place would cave in. So. And we've all kind of heard people say that sort of line. Friends, that's not humility, that's pride. That's a tremendous misunderstanding of the gospel. You don't need to get to a place where you are worthy enough to get before Jesus. There is no preparation. Jesus comes to sinners, not those who are on their pathway to not being sinners. And another thing that this teaches us about grace is grace has no limit. There's no bottom of the well of grace. It's for the worst of sinners. It's for the worst, and that's why this scene is so striking and so intense. It's, it's, not, it's not the story of the little boy who stole a candy bar from the local thrift store. It's the story of the woman caught in this deep, scandalous sin. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always, think about this, he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus If you're hearing this and you think that you're beyond Jesus' ability to save you, if you are one of his people, the Bible says that Jesus lives to make intercession for you. And Jesus' prayers are always answered. But here's something else that teaches us about grace, and this is maybe the most important thing, is that grace not only forgives, it enables. It enables. Grace commands. It commands this woman here to go and sin no more. This is what Paul writes in Titus. He says, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And I think we always say a hearty amen to that. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We all know that. It's not my works that I've been saved by. But grace, there's a two-way street to grace. It, it, the, the two-way street going outside of us, it takes our sin away from us. 
But the other side of the street is coming in the opposite direction. It's bringing ability. It's bringing strength to fight sin into us. It's a two-way street. Taking sin away, bringing righteousness in. That's what Paul says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So theologically, what happens when you receive saving grace? Well, you've been born again. You've been made alive. A sinning heart that was dead has been made alive. That's what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. We're dead in our sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive. And what happens that moment that you've been made alive? The sin, the grace going out, the, the highway going out of your heart, the sin is transferred away from you. It's taken by Jesus. It's, it's, it's His, and He's dealt with it on the cross. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, He Himself bore our sins, past, present, and future, in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So sin is taken away, but here, here's this highway of grace, not only taking sin out, but bringing righteousness into you if you're a Christian. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. He says that I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or my obedience, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul is saying that you are born again, you've been given the gift of faith, you look and you trust in what Jesus has done in his perfect life, his, his, his sacrifice on the cross, his glorious resurrection, and you put your faith in that, that faith is not a work, but it's a gift that you've been given with your new heart. You see Jesus, faith opens your eyes so that you can behold him. He's altogether lovely. He's so beautiful that he's irresistible. You trust in Jesus. Your sin is taken away, and his righteousness comes like a freight train on the other side of the street of grace coming into your heart, and it's yours. Even though you're the same person, you still got to grow a lot in that moment. The righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ is yours. You're justified. Your sin has been taken, and righteousness of Christ has been imputed and applied to your account. That's what happens to you if you're a Christian. And that's what happens to you in grace, not just forgiving, but enabling. And now, it's even better than that. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, comes and takes up residence in you. Romans 8, 9, and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh anymore. He's talking about a Christian. But you're in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that means if you don't have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, you're not a Christian. The converse is obviously true. If you do have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, you are a Christian. Or if you are a Christian, the Spirit of Christ necessarily dwells in you. Verse 10, he concludes, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So, so not only is your sin taken away, righteousness is imputed to you, but you have this spirit that lives in you, and now you begin the process, which I think much of the rest of the New Testament is about, this process of sanctification, where now you are enabled to fight sin and take God's side against your sin. Now, 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 friends, this is not a magic pill. This is slow plotting. It's, it's a little bit here. It's a little bit there. It's two steps forward, one step back. That's the Christian life. 
But we need to see this, and I want you to feel hope in this, that if you are stuck in sin, or if you are battling sin, I want you to understand biblically, theologically, what has happened to you, so that that knowledge would produce in you a sense of the fight, and it would produce in you a confidence that you are His, and that you can fight whatever sin you're battling. That's what it tells us about grace, I think, this passage, about the grace of Christ. Before we move on and end with the, 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 the nature of repentance, I think this also not only shows us about the grace of Christ, but it shows us about how gracious we should be to one another. Friends, uh, Paul writes in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, contrast what Paul says you should do with what these religious leaders do. Remember, they dragged this woman before Jesus. But if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That verse 2 is really, really something. Bear one another's burdens, B-E-A-R, and fulfill the law of Christ which is the new covenant application of the law of Moses. What were these Old Testament leaders doing? They were bearing, B-A-R-E, the burden of this woman, thinking that they were fulfilling the law of Moses, but they were completely missing the point. So let's end on this. What's, what's this also teach us about the nature of repentance? It's taught us about the nature of grace. What does it teach us about the nature of repentance? But we don't see this woman's life beyond this scene. So we don't know if she obeyed Jesus for good forever. We don't know that. But we do see what type of repentance that grace calls for. Not a perfect sinlessness, but a turning from, a leaving behind of the life of sin. That's what Jesus tells this woman. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, several things we need to, to just understand about repentance. What is repentance? Repentance, it's, it's a change of mind. It's a change of your direction of your life. It's turning away from sin and to the Lord and to obedience. It involves seeing your sin and understanding what it does and how it grieves the Lord and wrecks your life. And it means that you, you develop an increasing hatred for your sin. You loathe it. That's right, you loathe part of yourself that still has this residue of sin. And notice how that is so contrary to this love-yourself culture that we live in. This is what the Bible says in the Old Testament. When the prophet Ezekiel, God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel to the nation of Israel, and he's prophetically speaking about the new covenant that will come, how this Old Testament shadow will give way to the new covenant in Christ, how Christ will save you, he will die on the cross, he will give you a new heart, you will trust in him, you will be born again, I will give you a new heart. This is the famous passage in Ezekiel chapter 36 where uh, where, where, the pro- where God says through the prophet that I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, which I think is just an Old Testament picture 
of what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2, where he makes us alive. He does spiritual heart surgery. This is salvation. It's not something you don't make yourself better. You don't reach for the medicine. You don't try steps of self-improvement. You get, by God's sovereign grace, a heart transplant, and you are made new. And one of the things that this new heart does, and notice how contrary this is to our culture's understanding of self-esteem, is this new heart is now enabled to fight against the residue of sin that still remains in all of our lives, and it will loathe it. It will hate that part that still exists in you that is contrary to God. That's what the scriptures say, Ezekiel 36, 31. Then this is God speaking to Ezekiel as part of what comes with this new heart. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. You will loathe yourselves. That part of you that is still in you that's contrary, that's been killed, but still kind of is like a zom- the zombie part of us that keeps coming back, that we need to kill. Verses like this don't find their way on t-shirts very often. Loathe yourself, Ezekiel 36, 31. <laughs> but that's part of, do you see this? Embrace this. Stop watching sitcoms that make much of yourself. Embrace this. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. And this is part of real repentance. Not that you're just woes me to the point that you forget the grace of the gospel, but do you see the balance here? The healthy application of the gospel in the life of a Christian is tremendous confidence in the work of God in your life, which produces in you tremendous humility about the residue of sin that still exists in you. So on the one hand, there's this great confidence. And on the other hand, there's this also this loathing that I want to fight against what remains in me with the Spirit of God that dwells in me. And, and, and for many of us, this is such a foreign way of being that it almost feels kind of schizophrenic, but I actually think it's biblical spirituality. So repentance is a turning. It's a, it's a gift. It's something that we can't generate on our own. Don't presume that you will just continue on for several years and have your fun and sow your wild oats, and then eventually you'll settle down and be okay. It's not something that you can offer up when you want. It is a gift. Paul says in Romans 2, verse 4, don't presume upon the mercy and the kindness of God. It's his kindness that leads you to repentance, and it's a gift. One of the old confessions of faith says that repentance and faith... True saving faith, which produces true repentance. It says they're inseparable graces. They, they, you can't have one without the other. And so where there is true saving faith, there will always be some measure of repentance. That doesn't mean that it is perfection, sinless perfection. Of course it doesn't. But it does mean that we are taking God's side against our sin. I think a passage that helps us with this, and let me, let, me, let me end this part and conclude, is that repentance is a posture. It's not so much perfection. And I think this is an important balance. And I don't want this in any way to give a sense that it's okay to continue in sin, but there's a kind of biblical New Testament posture where the Christian is taking, this is what William Arnaud, this, this wonderful theologian in the 1800s said, we're taking God's side 
against our sin. That's the posture of the Christian. And Paul writes in Colossians 3, he says, listen to the tenses, listen to the logic of Paul in Colossians 3. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? And he's speaking to Christians, so he's, he's, he's working under the assumption that there's still earthly things in the Christian. Okay, and that, by the way, that, amen to that. We all understand that. We're, none of us read this and like, oh my, what could that be? No, we all identify with this. And we, not, we should have got, no, you know what I'm talking about? Amen. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now listen to verse 7. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So there's a difference between still wrestling with residual sin and living in it and walking in it and giving yourself over to it. Do you understand the tension here? In one sense, we can't fall off into the legalistic ditch and say, well, we have to have sinless perfection in order to be a Christian. That's not the testimony of the Scriptures. But on the other hand, we can't just say, oh, well, you know, it's just really hard, so I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just doing my, God, God has forgiven me. That's a kind of sinful liberty, a licentiousness. On the one hand, it's a, sin, it's, a, it's, a, it's a distortion of legalism. On the other hand, it's a distortion of licentiousness. And both are wrong. The gospel calls us to a middle road of taking God's side against our sin, putting to death what remains in us, becoming who we already are. Well, let me conclude. Let me conclude with this question. Who do you most identify with in this story? The woman? Well, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. If you didn't hear anything else today, hear that. Repentance can be yours. Do you identify most with the religious leaders? You realize that you're judgmental and self-righteous. You're prone to look down at others and excuse your own sin. Or maybe you might identify with the invisible man. I wonder if he was hiding behind some building watching all of this scene take place, knowing that he should have been there at the feet of Jesus too. Or maybe, (laughs) maybe you see a little bit of all three in yourself. On the one hand, desperately needing God's grace one minute because of your own folly. And then the next minute, looking down the end of your nose at someone for their folly. All while trying to hide your real life. That's an exhausting way to live. Friends, here's the point of the story. Jesus came to save sinners. And in this story, there's not just one sinner. They're all sinners. The woman, the invisible man the leaders. The difference is this woman, by God's sovereign grace, met with Jesus, not because she was looking for him, but because the hound of heaven came looking for her. And she, because of this sovereign grace, didn't walk away till she was forgiven. Don't walk away from Jesus unrepentant, unforgiven. Come to Him. He is the friend of sinners.
Lord, as we conclude with seeing the gospel preached through the testimony of a brother and sister in this church, may the Spirit of God speak, humble us, make us run to Christ afresh. And for any friends that are in this room that don't know you, Lord, give them a new heart so they can trust in Jesus. Jesus is the friend of sinners. And praise God for that, because we are all sinners. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.